I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you, uh, everybody, for listening. Thanks to uh, all the new listeners, and thanks even more to all of the old listeners. If you like the show, then maybe take a moment sometime this week to recommend it to somebody you think might enjoy it, or at least somebody who think you think might have a good argument with you about it after listening to a single three-minute segment. If you are tired of waiting for new episodes to come out every week and you'd like to hear more, then you can go to sleevericketts.substack.com and subscribe to The Secret Show. There are seven episodes up there already. I misnumbered the last one, uh, and there are more coming out all the time. You can sign up for just a couple bucks, $2.50 a month. If you do the annual plan or if you're rich, you can sign up for the rich person plan. But either way, there's a range. And if money is a problem, then just uh, just let me know and we'll figure something out. I would rather have uh, listeners. Also, I have not mentioned in a while the whole iTunes rating uh, nonsense because I, I still don't understand what that ends up meaning. But I did notice just... Just uh, so you're informed, I did notice I recently got my very first four-star rating. I'd previously gotten only five-star ratings and then a single one-star rating from my dad, who did not know how to use his phone. (laughs) Uh, But uh, the four versus five-star war has commenced, so if you'd like to... Uh, if you'd like to log in and register your 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 judgment on either end, you are uh, certainly welcome to. Uh, or start a new front on the the in the the um, behind the three star barricades. In any case, thank you as always for listening. I've got a really good show this week. My guest is at long last Andrew Palmer, uh, a novelist who published the really terrific book The Bachelor with I think Houghton Mifflin I'm not sure I have, a, I have a link to it in the show notes and this is a book that <laughs> it, is, it is a very funny book about very smart people making very foolish decisions it is crammed with love triangles with weirdly poignant meditations on reality tv and it even contains uh, juicy gossip about the life of John Berryman. So basically it was engineered in a lab for the pleasure of Slee Ricketts co-host Alice Allen. I'm so confident that Alice will just gobble this book up that I've actually already ordered her a copy. And since I sprang for the Australian Priority Mail, I ordered it last Saturday, which means it should get there in just six to eight months. Andrew joined me to talk about Keep the Aspidistra Flying, George Orwell's 1936 novel about failing slash failed poet Gordon Comstock. It is a very funny, very uh, biting novel, and uh, Andrew and I had a lot of fun discussing it. We had also talked a little bit about his novel, The Bachelor, as well as his time producing the writer's almanac for Garrison Keillor. Uh, So we get into that a little bit at the end. Andrew also had a pretty uh, entertaining rant about the recent wrongness of other Slee Ricketts co-host, Brian Platzer. Um, So that, uh, I didn't want this episode to go too long, so I am going to save that for The Secret Show in another uh, goodie bag episode coming up soon. Uh, if If you would like a preview of the most recent a secret show episode just stay 
uh, listening at the end of the episode today, and there will be a little excerpt that I think I think you will like. This was a really good one. I really Alice just sort of took charge and grilled me on the topic of dishonesty in the contemporary poetry world, and we got pretty deep in the weeds. I think it was it was a good episode. I hope you will enjoy it, and if you listen to the end of this episode, you will hear a little excerpt from that. Uh, right now, though, let's, let's get to my conversation with Andrew Palmer, author of The Bachelor. The, the protagonist, Gordon Comstock, he has published one totally obscure book of poems. Although, like, there's obscure and there's obscure because, like, in 1936, he's like, oh, oh, he'd only gotten 13 reviews. 13 reviews. Times Literary Supplement. <laughs> right, right. The, the, the Times Literary Supplement blurb comes up over and over again. And, and it's like, <laughs> a, a, it's like a poet of excellent promise or something like that. But he's also gotten... 13 other reviews. Oh I mean, can God. you imagine a, a book of poetry, <laughs> any book Christ. of poetry today getting 13 reviews, maybe the two or three, like m- most- The hottest ones. Uh, I mean, like that was the Ada Lamone thing. She had like 13 reviews. If that, she probably had like nine reviews, but yeah. Right, right. I mean, for a novel, that's an extraordinary amount of, of reviews <laughs> right. today. For, for for a book of poetry, it, it struck me as just, you know, astounding. I mean, it, mu- it must just be, because he, oh, there is a, like a lot of talk in the book about trashy literature and it still seems to be like the the entertainment of the working class like they're buying right, re- renting right. novels to read rather this so like i guess you're, you're not competing with with tv is really the key but right. still like yeah. poetry is doing pretty well really uh, well really well it seems the other great thing about about gordon comstock's first book is its title which is just mice yeah Mice, and then to be followed up by the the never finished sequel, London Pleasures. London Pleasures, <laughs> which is, yeah, yeah. So, so he he is working on this this book length poem, London Pleasure, or would be book length poem, London Pleasures. He he's working in a crummy bookstore that we find out later is not as crummy as a bookstore can get. It's like it looks nice in retrospect when he moves on to an even crummier bookstore. Yes, uh, he's got a girlfriend who won't sleep with him for various reasons. He's got one sort of friend who's an editor of a, of a sort of ridiculous uh, magazine called Antichrist. Yes, and, like a, but, a quasi-socialist. Yeah, magazine. he has a, he has a great a literary history. magazine. Uh, description here. He says, Antichrist was a middle to highbrow monthly socialist in a vehement but ill-defined way. In general, it gave the impression of being edited by an ardent nonconformist who had transferred his, his allegiance from God to Marx and in doing so had got mixed up with a gang of Verlieb poets. Pretty, <laughs> yes. pretty damning like for magazines I know today. Yeah, I thought of you uh, when I read that. Uh, <laughs> Imagine the delight you would take in that description. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do like he basically like most of the book, it just concerns him not having enough money to do anything that he wants to do. And then, and then like eventually getting a tiny bit of money and it's total, total catastrophe for him. Uh, so his life just sort of gets subtly worse and worse and then dramatically worse. Well, it's, we a, get to it's the sort end. of a tiny, sort of a tiny bit of money. Just, just to harp right. on that, yeah. on that one yeah, element. Clar- but clarify it's, that. Well, he, he finally gets a poem accepted in an American literary magazine. Yeah. Is it the California Review? Something like that. Something in California, yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's one poem, and he gets paid $50 for this poem, which right. in today's money is probably about like $1,000 or something like that. Like, it's a lot of money for a poem, definitely. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, and he certainly imagines 
that this money will, will last him quite a while and he'll be able to yeah. afford a lot of stuff that he wasn't able to afford before. Exactly. But yeah, he, blow, he blows it all in, in one sort of tragic night and then you can continue with your summary of the yeah, you know, yeah. The, so the story. And, that, and that night, you know, further leaves him further debased and demoralized. Uh, although his friend and his girlfriend stick by him with admirable loyalty through a, a pretty disgraceful display. Yes. Uh, so, so there, the ending, I have like so many thoughts and feelings about. So before before we get to that, though, I'm just kind of curious. Um, I mean, it is, it's a book about poetry that spends almost all of its time, or it's a book about a poet that spends almost all of its time agonizing over money. And like, e even the epigraph is, is that famous passage from 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. I mean, that whole passage, it's like a paragraph long that's read at weddings, but basically throughout, it's all in praise of love or in some translations, charity, but in, in the in Orwell's novel, the word love is replaced at every instance with the word money. Yes. So, you know, it, it, it ends. Um, and now abideth faith, hope, money, these three, but the greatest of these is money. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. The, the From at least most of the novel, and I, I want to get to that ending too, because it's oh, it's really interesting. But for, for most of the novel, the, what Gordon Comstock uh, explicitly thinks, and what I think the novel itself seems to be arguing as well, is that, um, you know, he says at one point, there are, there are two ways to live. You can either be rich or you can deliberately refuse to be rich. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of like embrace this money world or you can reject it wholesale. You know, <laughs> in my experience, those, those are not exactly the, the only two ways to, to <laughs> li live as a writer in, in the yeah. world. I think that there's a sort of like middle way where you can sort of acknowledge the absurdity and ugliness of you know whatever late stage capitalism or the, the sort of decaying capitalism that, that Orwell talks about you can sort of acknowledge that you know even even be upset by it and also choose to participate in it partly while also like um, figuring out a way to maintain some sort of artistic literary, life for for gordon comstock that doesn't seem to be a possibility yeah so i mean because what what has already happened before the beginning of the novel is that he he comes from a a, a kind of a respectable but like struggling family and he's he's gotten all teed up as like the one person in his family who got a real education like it, the rest of his family really sacrificed to, to get him a, a decent education he's he's all set up with a what's considered a good job which is writing he's sort of he's working for the new Albion which is a an advertising firm and he he ultimately gets to where he would be writing copy and he shows some promise at it and then quits and he quits as you said to spurn the the money god uh, which is how he you know he, he's obsessed with the money god that dictates you know the every aspect of their lives around them and he's obsessed with like obviously with, with the money in his pocket, but also with like the horrible advertisements on the street and the, the, the money everybody must spend on all the things around them. And as well as like the, the connections and the opportunities that lots of people have sort of invisibly because they come from money. And he, he talks about like the people who end up having the prestigious writing posts in various periodicals basically due to their education, you know, which, which more or less means money. I'm the thing that I wonder about with him because he he seems to be living, you know, like it, 
at first blush, you, I mean, he's so miserable. He's so unhappy and he hates everybody around him so much. Yes. But, but there is at least initially, I kind of thought, okay, well, he's really decided to make sacrifices such that he can just devote his life to poetry. But he's he sort of, he has so, it's so hard for him to get any poetry writing done, partly because it's like he's cold, he's hungry, he doesn't have enough cigarettes. He's a, you know, he, he is sexually frustrated. He feels humiliated. Like he, he doesn't seem to be able to give much of himself to poetry despite making all these sacrifices for it. And it made me think like, well, was the new Albion, you don't get the impression that like that would have taken so much more of his time no. than the bookstore job does. But I do think like he, he does say at one point, he makes a distinction between like, he says basically like what you don't want a good job because with a good like you want a, a a dead end job a blind alley job as he calls it like the thing about the bookstore is like you're not going to go anywhere from there you don't really have to do much you can kind of turn your brain off and all you really need to do is sort of be respectable looking enough that when like the the posh customers come in they feel good about going into the bookstore they're going into whereas i guess with the new albion job if he were to really write copy and really get ahead in the business world, he would he would have to think about it. Like he he couldn't turn his brain off. He would have to he would have to devote himself to it. And that, maybe that's yeah. the difference. Well, and but I it, think maybe maybe as much as as that in in Gordon's mind, he, he would have to sort of sell his soul to to even to even participate at all in the in the sort of. PR world. It's hard yeah. to talk about all this without talking about the ending. Should, should we? Yeah. yeah. So really quick? Yeah, you want to uh, give a give an account of the end? So he he has this night where he blows all his money. Uh, he gets horribly drunk. He he offends everybody. He ends up hiring a prostitute whom he doesn't even he's not even physically able to sleep with. But he he causes a big mess. He gets himself. He blacks out. Hits a cop. <laughs> wakes up in jail. Uh, and basically lo loses his job is disgraced and and ends up living with his his rich friend Ravelston for it's like a like a like a couple weeks at this at some at this point isn't it at least yeah yeah, yeah. um his girlfriend sticks by him rosemary uh despite it all and he he finally eventually is able to 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 squeak into an even shittier bookstore job at a little lending library owned by a a repugnant and like maybe vaguely anti-Semitic caricature named Cheeseman. Yeah, for sure. Where he, where he makes like substantially less than his last job where he made very little and he's, and there's no dignity at all to it. It's just, it's everything is, is grubby and, and awful as it can possibly be. So why don't you pick up there and. Sure. And he also, it, yeah. he also moves into an apartment that's even worse than, than yeah. the terrible apartment where yeah, he's yeah, been yeah, living yeah. for the first uh, 75% of the book. It's this, yeah. you know, just this, this tiny, like insect infected, extremely cold, decaying apartment on, on the, on the top floor of a building. Um, yeah. he the, the cru crucially for plot reasons. And it's a, it's a clever thing because it's such a, he, he goes through such a fall at this moment in the book, but then importantly, it's so undignified. It's such a shithole that nobody minds if he brings a girl up. Yes, like that's right. because for for much of the book, there's been a lot of trouble with it. He and his his sort of infinitely patient patient girlfriend maybe are going to have sex and almost have sex and can't have sex and and so much of it has to do with as he says the time and the place problem. 
Right. They can't have sex in his, in his apartment. And so they, they go off into the country and they're about to have sex. And, and uh, what happens so that they can't have sex? Oh, it's, I mean, so he starts to go for it and she's scandalized because and I, I had to look this up because I wasn't sure initially. Right, if, right, right. And it, like the way it's written in the book and like coming from our age, I thought this like for a second, I thought it was like a Catholic girl, technical virginity thing. But I think I think the idea is, is ultimately it becomes clear that it's he wasn't going to use a contraception. And for her, yes. she, she can't get pregnant just for not, you know, not even social reasons, just financial reasons. It's not feasible. And so they she won't have sex with them without contraception. She then sort of offers to, I mean, he's really awful to her. He's really horrible to her. But they, they, they for, for all these reasons, they don't end up having sex until finally he's in this horrible uh, roach uh, infested hotel at the end. Right. And she, she is, like you said, able to, able to come and go uh, as she pleases because no one cares. And Gordon has sort of separated himself from her. He doesn't answer his her letters. His only desire is, as he puts it, to sink down into the mud. Like he's turning his face away from everything and everyone. Like yeah. remarkably and implausibly, Rosemary, like you said, sticks with him and continues to write letters to him. Eventually comes to visit him in his apartment. Uh, they, they have a very sort of sad interaction. And then she takes off all her clothes, lies down in bed and says, let's have sex. And they do. And it's really sort of awful. Yeah, it's very, um, it's totally depressing. Hold on one sec. There's a helicopter going over my head. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'll just read quickly. There's a passage um, toward that part of the book where, where Orwell says, he liked to think that beneath the world of money, there is that great sluttish underworld where failure and success have no meaning, a sort of kingdom of ghosts where all are equal. That was where he wished to be, down in the ghost kingdom, below ambition. And that is where he more or less ends up until Rosemary yes, comes right. to intervene. So she comes to intervene. They, they have sex. She leaves. Uh, he's in poverty and, and despondent. Uh, until a few weeks later, he hears again from Rosemary, and she is pregnant. And yep. this changes everything all of a sudden for Gordon in his mind. He thinks, you know, maybe it wouldn't be such a bad idea to work at this PR firm after all. He is able to get the job back. He moves in with Rosemary into a sort of like, sort of shabby but respectable middle-class apartment. Mm -hmm. They get married, and... Apparently, his attitude towards money, which is defined the first 95% of the novel, has taken a complete 180. He's more or less fine with it. He throws away the draft of London Pleasures, the mm -hmm. long poem that he's been working on for the past two years, and goes off to live with Rosemary and her, their baby, happily ever after. Yeah, the he's um, what's there's a it's kind of an odd odd ending line. Um, it says, "Well, once again, things were happening in the Comstock family <laughs> because family had sort of fallen off." And the thought the the thought for much of the book is that he's kind of going to be the the end of the line as far as the name. His his uh, one sister is not going to marry, and he's he's shriveling up into a, a you know a June bug shell. And so at the end, finally. Things are happening. There's not the family is yeah, not yeah. going into into the uh, dark entirely. So, and we should say also the the, the title "Keep the Aspidistra Flying" 
is a sort of joke. The the line that it is playing off of is um, keep the colors flying or keep the flag flying as a kind of a, a patriotic expression of uh, or feeling of uh, expression of patriotism uh, for the the British flag. Um, the aspidistra is a a hardy indoor plant that I, apparently, according to Wikipedia, it was became popular in the Victorian era because it was it was a plant that could survive in the horrible air um, produced by oil lamps, <laughs> uh, and so it became popular. It's a it's a big you know big shiny uh, leaves and it grows to enormous size. He says about it. He, he refers to this book he reads where where Gordon has this obsession with the aspidistra. He hates it. It's everywhere. It's um, it's always put out for. It's a kind of a an emblem of respectability that the middle class is um, is attached to. Uh, Orwell uh, says it was about this time that he came across the ragged trousered philanthropists, which is a book, and read about the starving carpenter who pawns everything but sticks to his aspidistra. The aspidistra became a sort of symbol of for, became a sort of symbol for Gordon. After that, the aspidistra, flower of England, it ought to be on our coat of arms instead of the the lion and the unicorn. There will be no revolution in England while there are aspidistras in the windows. And to Rosemary's shock and I mean, seemingly genuine dismay because he's talked so much shit about aspidistras throughout the whole time they've known each other. He insists on buying an aspidistra and keeping it, you know, tending to it well and and showing it off in the window at the end. Yes, yes. Uh, which 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 for the reader again is is like a very surprising about face that Gordon has Gordon has taken because. The aspidistra as a symbol has been like really sort of like hammered home again and again throughout throughout the novel as a sort of like uh, symbol of, of disgusting like lower and middle class perseverance in the face of 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 uh, the awfulness of, of capitalism. Um, I was trying to think of like what would be a comparable item today. And it might be something like in in America, at least like in or in like non-urban America, it might be something like even just like the lawn. Sure. Like, some, yeah. like something that's like it doesn't serve any real function, but it's important that you it ha it's important for your presentation as a respectable household. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, that's that's pretty good. It doesn't yeah. quite have the the sort of like. Uh, it's not just clinging, clinging, clinging to life aspect of the aspidistra, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, he calls, he's at one point he says, like with despair, he says the aspidistra was the tree of life. Right. Uh, yeah. I think my personal aspidistra is the minivan, which I I've hated since I was a child, and now drive one and hate it. It's a it's like a pretty intense fight that they have about it, where she says, "No, of course we're not going to get an aspidistra." Yeah. And, and he he prevails and gets one. Oh, and just to, to um, just to elaborate a little bit, he, when he goes back to the New Albion, the the PR place, uh, Rosemary has has like really put herself out there to to get him the job back, and he has been yes, basically it, he has had a standing offer to come back there for a while, and he's he's refused to because he was a really a really good writer of ad copy it turns out yeah yeah that's at the end we hear um when he starts writing ad copy he he did it very well he did it far better than he had ever done anything else in his life mr warner <laughs> gave golden reports of him there was no doubt about gordon's literary ability he could use words with the economy that is only learned by years of effort so perhaps his long agonizing struggles to be a writer had not been wasted after all so what 
I read the whole ending passage in one go, uh, sitting at the dog park, um, which is its, which is its own weird emblem of the middle class, and just had such a strong reaction. But I want to hear yours first. Man, um, I, I let me start by 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 re- reading something on the back of my edition of. of oh, the, I wonder of this if we book. have the same one. I wonder because I underlined a passage on the back of mine. So please, yeah. So so according to you know Harcourt, th- this book is quote a poignant and ultimately hopeful yes. look at class and society. Keep the Aspidistra flying pays tribute to the stubborn virtues of ordinary people who keep the Aspidistra flying. <laughs> I, I have like scratched because it's a shiny back. It, I have scratched in with the tip of a ballpoint pen, the un, a line underneath ultimately hopeful. This, this book A like has nothing but contempt for the ordinary people who keep the Aspidistra flying. It, including everyone, yes. including Gordon in, in this oh. novel is, tr- is treated with, with disgust and contempt. Rosemary is is maybe an exception because she's this sort of like again, Im- implausible prepared. saint. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but everyone else, said, she even he makes her. I mean, he's so he makes her when she tells him he's she's pregnant, and she says, "Well, I don't know if if you can't marry me, then I can't afford to have a baby." And he says, "What? You would have an abortion?" And she says, "Well, if I can't have the baby, I can't. and so she he makes her promise to have the baby no matter what before he decides whether or not he wants to marry her. And so she, yes, and she as you yes. said, she is really an, kind of an Im, Im, improbable saint, but she, it, I think she does still come off as having a, basically a heart of gold, but, a, but apart from her, most everyone is, is sort of awful. So that, so that, that is one thing that's wrong about that, that passage on the back of the book. <laughs> I, I, ultimately hopeful. I mean, definitely not, but I do think it's, <laughs> it's sort of complex. I think that, and, and it makes this yeah. book pretty interesting to or more it made this book more satisfying to me than it maybe otherwise would have been totally, if it had totally. if it had a really bleak ending or a, a a sort of less complex happy ending a less complicated happy ending <laughs> part of part of gordon's sort of change in attitude is this sort of realization once rosemary becomes pregnant that to reject money is to sort of step outside the stream of life, at least in today's society. And so yeah. by, by rejecting money, he's just like not participating in, in, in the world, in life as, as it exists for us today. And there's something about that, which, which felt sort of true to me. Like you, like yeah. you, you can't reject money and still expect to sort of like participate in the world in, in any sort of full and meaningful way on the other hand i think there's like a deep deep irony to comstock's change of attitude over the last couple of chapters and something sort of chilling about his like wholesale rejection of poetry and embrace of public relations which throughout the book have have been sort of like counterpoised as, as these two sort of like two different ways words can be put to use to have an effect on people there's yeah there's um, a lot of there is a lot of like talk that i take to be fairly genuine about how advertising is is toxic is like bad for society in the world he, at the end he absolutely. even refers to he says like the advertising slogan he helps come up with they, they what the goal the goal that they had for it was that it would rankle in the public consciousness like a poisoned arrow and that is yes. like there's a lot of talk of advertising there's a lot of quoted you know advertising slogans and it does all it is pretty convincingly presented as being like an active bad. An active, Absolutely. You know, and ev- everyone at the PR firm is, has this completely cynical attitude towards what they're doing. 
yeah. uh, they, they all sort of understand that they're in a, in a toxic business, which like rings true to my experience with like people adjacent to that world. I, my own work is adjacent to that, to that world sometimes. And I can, I can recognize that, that sort of attitude and it feels bad. It feels bad to be participating in that sort of game. I think there's like a, a pretty deep irony to, to Gordon's, to Gordon's reentering that world and, and rejecting art. It's almost as if the novel seems to be saying that like, there is no place for, for poetry and art at all in, in today's world. It simply like can't exist within the sort of confines that, that have been established. Cause you're, you're right. That like what, what is not, really explored but is almost taken as a given that he i mean so by the time he goes he's down in the you know ghost kingdom where he's just working uh working the shit job and and living in squalor at that point he is already given up writing poetry he carries around the in incomplete draft of his poem in his pocket but he's not even writing at all at that point he's so demoralizing sort of given up and then when he hears from rosemary that she's pregnant we're told that the the feeling there there's a little bit of deliberation, but that basically the feeling he experiences is relief. That there's a sense that he can he's sort of allowed to give up this fight yes. or whatever it is. And then he yes. he throws he throws the draft of the poem into the into a sewer grate and totally gives up poetry. Like it's it's not like he tinkers with poetry on the side or he he just he completely leaves it behind entirely. Yes. Which, is which like I read I kind of I, I I saw the line ultimately hopeful and kind of read that sentence on the back of the book before I had finished it and I thought oh yeah. I guess somehow he writes poems at the end like I guess somehow there's some poems happening at the <laughs> right, end right. and of course that's not the, the case at all but then right. I, like I so yeah I and the other thing is there's yeah. there's nothing about this world which they're entering into the sort of middle class life which has been presented in a a positive light for, for the entire novel. Everything about it seems ugly and terrible in, in, in the novel's point of view. Yeah. And, and, so, like, and yeah. so for them to, to suddenly take the step towards that life and for us to imagine that as, as something positive seems, seems wrong. So, so I thought about two, like two different possible readings of this ending. And I still don't like part of what made me as like it, I got really angry and really confused. And I think like you, I'd also, I left the book feeling so much more satisfied than I think I would if, either if he had just, if like Rosemary had left him and he'd just sunk into total obscurity and, and depression. Which or, is what I was expecting yeah. would happen. Right, I mean, oh, that's that, totally that what That was the trajectory of the book. It, it was, yeah. Yeah. It, like, it, I, I would it, not like, have been surprised if that had happened. No, it, it was a, for being an incredibly conventional turn of events, it's, really genuinely surprising when it happened in the book. Yes. I did not, did not expect it. But so I, I was thinking about like, if my dad read this book or if like any of my uncles or probably like in fairness to him, like my, my stepdad, like most men I know of his generation, like educated, thoughtful, intelligent, you know, book reading men, the, the response to Gordon would a hundred percent be, well, he's a fool and an asshole, which he clearly is. Like he clearly is. So like self-destructive and and obstinate and kind of awful throughout most of the book but that at the end he just i think like my dad would say like oh he just obviously does what he should have done all along and like it's just a book about him about like it taking him 
a long <laughs> right. time to make the obviously correct decision. And then he is good at this and he should get paid. He should be good at it. He should get paid for being good at it. And he can have a good life with his family. And, and that's what should happen. Like this is a, the only thing that would keep this from being a traditionally happy ending in his, from his perspective, I think would be that like, there was no legitimate conflict all along, except like him being a stubborn jerk. Mm -hmm. Like there's a certain truth to that. Like I, I can see that point. And it is especially weird to me that he just like, he can't take the middle-class job and write poems. <laughs> like he, he already wasn't writing poems when he was in his worst, you know, in, in poverty before that. But then the other reading mm -hmm. this ending that, that I couldn't help but think about was as a parallel to 1984. Oh, that's interesting. How so? So 1984, uh, the, the, and that, I believe that was published in the late forties. I think it was like, he like was yeah. writing it in 1948 and he switched the years around. But he, um, so it's, you know, a good bit after this, the, the protagonist of that book is Winston, I think is his name. Yeah, I think that's right. And he, he lives under this brutal, uh, uh, totalitarian regime that watches everything he does and controls everything he does. And, and, uh, all language is, is restricted in this really crippling way. And he, over the course of the book, he, gets to know he, he finds little ways to live slightly outside of the the view of big brother he finds little little slices of privacy this you know here and there and he develops a a, a relationship and, a, and a, a love affair with this woman i think her name is i want to say her name is julia which is the name of gordon's sister but i'm not sure but he, he develops yeah. this love affair uh, and they have a seem to have like a really genuine bond and really care for each other. And the two of them join what seems to be basically like a, a resistance to the to the regime. And they they kind of commit themselves to fighting against this this horrible and and you know devastatingly repressive government. And uh, and then in the end, he is they're captured, they're found out, they're separated and and tortured. And he's he's you know, uh, subjected to this really horrible psychological and physical torture. And finally, the end of that torture is that he, he is, you know, his will is totally broken until, uh, he, he agrees that two plus two equals five. And he even, he even finally, um, uh, agrees to totally betray Julia. But basically he's, he's, he's threatened with the, the most horrible fear he can imagine. And he, the only way he's able to get out of it is fight by finally begging them to do it to her instead. And then, uh, cruelly, they don't kill him, but they finally release him. And there's a moment when he and, and Julia or whatever her name is meet up in the world outside and they're both just completely broken people. And they, anything they might've had before has been totally shattered and they go on living as, you know, newly rehabilitated subjects in this, this nightmare totalitarian world. And, and reading into this, I thought, is this sort of the same ending? Like, it's not, I mean, the, the marriage, the marriage survives it, but like, is this, I mean, like if, because I don't think this book is the, I don't think Orwell was writing this book with my dad's perspective, which was just like stubborn son of a bitch. You should just take the advertising job. Like that, that doesn't, I don't think that's quite, I mean, I think he does seem to have real, as you say, like he has real, real anger and contempt for capitalism in this book and the money got like, Gordon's criticisms of the money god are at times kind of juvenile, but they seem to be basically 
like right at least it, like the, the the book seems to agree with him in that yes i mean gordon seems like a, a vessel for orwell to maybe slightly exaggerate what's what are probably his own views on on capitalism and ads and money etc yeah so so what do you how can no you i i think this? that's yeah that's an interesting reading i mean it's <laughs> and i i think that this book can take on like a, a darker cast uh from the from a from the perspective of 1948 or, p- partly because of what you just outlined in the plot of 1984 um and partly too because there's some really interesting stuff at the beginning of this book where, where gordon is sort of like free associating in his mind looking at these ads and and imagining like warplanes flying over london and this is oh, you yeah, know 19, 1934 Th- yeah, 1935 he's about, about fantasizing this, yeah. about him like he he finds himself desiring it to happen yeah which turns out to be a sort of prophetic and you know um it, it yeah. means something different maybe for the for these two people to enter into a normal middle class life in 1936 from a post-world war ii perspective than it does from a, from a pre-world world war ii perspective but even without that I, I i agree i think there's something sort of chilling and, and sinister in, in the ending of, of, of the novel at the same time it's not like obviously so it's like it's ambivalent enough for your dad's imagined reading to be sort of like understandable at least, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I was, and and it makes me wonder now, um, I haven't seen it, but there's a apparently like moderately successful romantic comedy from, from some decades ago. It takes a phrase from within the book where he refers to he and Rosemary have this they bicker with each other in a playful way, and he refers to it as a merry war. And so, this movie is called The Merry War. I saw that on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. I, I have not seen it, but it makes me. I'm assuming it has a a happy romantic comedy ending, which would line up with the book. And but that I'm assuming it, it's it's sold as a happy ending in that case. And I could imagine people like it's something I've been thinking about because like Brian has this obsession with wish fulfillment in novels, and like people seem to want wishful like it, it seems to be even sophisticated novels seem to like like often success seems not you know dependent upon but like tied to an element of wish fulfillment in the plot and even if it's a kind of a freudian perverse wish fulfillment and so it i thought about this as being an example of like having your cake and eating it too like writing a novel yeah. where there is wishful like there is a happy ending but of course like with a little bit of perspective the the happy ending is is sort of all wrong yeah absolutely that's right and I, you know i think i think the title maybe is a bit of a bit of a hat tip towards that darker reading to keep the aspidistra flying is a slogan yeah. right it's like yeah it's like that itself reads like a bit of ad ad copy which i think you know suggests that that's we're not meant to understand that as as a sort of unironic rah-rah sort of thing but despite what the back cover would tell you yeah but no but as, as something you know really sort of sort of dark the two things which which i thought were great in the depiction of yeah uh, of a poet were a we get to see gordon actually at work on his poetry 
pretty early yes. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's just like a, a delightful chapter. <laughs> he's, yeah. He gets like, he's like, uh, I really need to do some work tonight. No, I'm not going to do it. I want to go out for a drink. All right, I'll sit down and do some work. And he sits down and does like maybe an hour's worth of work on this long, unfinished, unfinishable poem, London Pleasures. And it consists of him like crossing out a couple of lines. Yeah. And he's like really happy with it. It fills him with yeah. with, with pride. And, and and then like five minutes later, I can't remember what happens, but he oh I, I it's the mail arrives and he's hoping that he will have heard either from Rosemary or from a literary magazine because he right. sent out a couple of poems <laughs> to literary magazines. And, and yeah. I think he doesn't hear from either of them. And then he goes back to his poem and he's like, This is the worst bullshit I've ever read in my life. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. wasting my life. No. That that like felt <laughs> yeah, you know. Right. really well done and, and recognizable just in terms right. of that it's oscillation like, like, between the, like yeah oh this is like a masterpiece and this is like this is a travesty right but the like the, the, the other the thing one is pops up on your gmail tab and you click on it and it's it's like, it's like an amazon <laughs> right. ad like, god damn it <laughs> right right um but the other thing which i thought was really great was was, was just him wait, waiting for those responses and and eventually receiving the responses from literary magazines yeah. at first he gets a rejection and, um, you know, he's like, he, he's feels this, this sort of like anger towards the rejection note and the editors and the whole like world, which everyone feels when they get a rejection note like that. And then he gets the acceptance and he goes totally insane. Like he gets the $50 <laughs> check and he's like, he, he loses his mind for a night and, yeah. and, um, is just like ecstatic in a way that ends up being really self-destructive and, and um, it's sort of miserable most like he has this really like there's this brief moment early on where he's getting drunk with his cab driver and that seems to be when he's sort of at his peak and from then on basically like the whole night is just rattleson and rosemary saying let's not do this <laughs> yes <laughs> please, yeah. please stop drinking please stop spending money and he just gets angrier and angrier and just keeps spending money and getting drunker yeah and there's a moment where they they order he orders the second bottle of wine and that's sort of like a hinge moment for the evening where like he sort of knows he shouldn't order the second bottle that's going to tip right. it over into something pretty dark and he does it anyway and uh it's that's a, a great sort of like a great sort of depiction of like a, a celebration i don't know just sort of the hollowness that that like yeah. accompanies that that sort of like feeling of being accepted getting something accepted uh it's really spot on and awful there's this there's a little moment that i i thought was great because it it felt like a a very uh, able skewering of uh this podcast among other things um but it said when they're sitting at the table talking shit with uh, ravelson and rosemary it says it was great fun it is fun when you have good food and good wine inside you to demonstrate that we live in a dead and rotting world he was being witty at the expense of modern literature. They were all being witty. With the fine yes. scorn of the unpublished, Gordon knocks down reputation <laughs> after reputation. Which again, not unpublished. He's written right. Mice. That's mice true. received yeah. 13 but he, but he reviews. Feel, right? 13 reviews, including one of the Times Literary Supplement. But he feels unpublished. It's, yeah, feels like, unpublished. It. Another great detail about Mice, which I'm just remembering, is that it was only published because Ravelston, his only friend, who's this editor of the literary magazine, like talked to the publisher and is like, maybe you can publish this book by this friend yeah. of mine, yeah. which Gordon doesn't know about. And so he's able to feel this sort of right. Right. mix of pride and self-disgust that one feels when one publishes a book. Yeah. Yeah. Ra rather than just the self-disgust. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you get the impression that like much of, if not all of his publishing success has thus far apart from California has been because of 
these sort of quiet favors done behind his back. Though, again, what like did that, you, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask, we see a, a finished poem yeah. of, of, yeah. uh, of Gordon's. Mm-hmm. What, what did you make of that poem and what do you think we're supposed to make, make of it? Yeah, it's so it's, um, yeah, he's working on a poem throughout the whole first half of the book and we see little bits and pieces and there are these kind of wonderful moments where like in a very, in a way that just totally rang true, he, he's got a couple lines. Um, yeah, here. So, uh, here's a, here's a bit very early on, um, outside the slimy street looked gray and drear from somewhere around the corner came the clatter of hooves, a cold hollow sound caught by the wind, the dark columns of smoke from the chimneys veered over and rolled flatly down the sloping roofs. Ah, and so he's, he's got the first couple lines, but then he's, he's trying to finish the stanza. Sharply the menacing wind sweeps over the bending poplars newly bare, and the dark ribbons of the chimneys veer downward, tumpty tumpty, something like murky air. And that, like, that's, and this is good, but the impulse faded. His eye fell again upon the ad posters across the street. So, like, that felt very true. And you see him sort of slowly, bit by bit, adding to this. And, you know, he's, he's using a lot of adverbs, and it feels forced at times. But you finally see this, this finished product, and you don't actually, um, you don't hear anything more about it. Like, whether he submits it somewhere, whether whether Ravelston is going to take it or, or, you know, anything's going to happen with it. It's no, it's more than it's like two thirds of the way through the book. You finally get this poem and it's, it's like a page long poem. It, it has that same beginning. Uh, and it's all about the, the money God. And he has this, he has this sort of terrible thing with, um, with Rosemary, where, as we said, he, he's going to go have sex with her out in the countryside, but, but because of the contraception thing, they don't. And then she even offers to again, but he's so, he's so uh, uh feels so diminished by this question of money that money has come between them and that's what sort of inspires him uh to with the the um the end of the poem he he has this this litany of all the things that money does the, the lord of all the money god who rules us blood and hand and brain who gives the roof that stops the wind and giving takes away again and he goes down and he, he lists thing after thing after thing the money god does who this who that who the other and he ends who binds with chains the poet's wit, the navvy's strength, the soldier's pride, and lays the sleek estranging shield between the lover and his bride, which is a line I think he is, I think he's gently borrowing that from Hausman, um, who has a great poem called When I Watch the Living Meet, and it ends, uh, and it's all about um, uh, the the pain of being alive and then the, the comparative peace and um, coldness of death but the end of the poem is lovers lying two and two ask not whom they sleep beside and the bridegroom all night through never turns him to the bride so i i think the ending of the poem is 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 maybe the best part of it it's yeah it's definitely got a lot of nice stuff in it he has a i particularly like the there there's all this these references to drages which is a a, like a store where people get furniture on layaway that it's like shitty furniture that looks nice enough that you feel respectable and he has a line um they think of rent rates, season tickets, insurance, coal, the skivvies wages, boots, school bills, and the next installment upon the two twin beds from Drages. That's good. I mean, like yeah. some of the some of the poem is pretty good. Some of it is a clumsy, but I think like it's it's a pretty decent little competent poem that's super, super cynical about about money. And and I kind of feel like the the poem gives pretty genuine voice to what I suspect Orwell believes and I, I wonder if that's not why we don't hear from it again mm-hmm. that like he it doesn't 
He like the beginning is not great, and there there are definitely some some chunks that are that yeah. are shaggy. But like, yeah, it's not a it's not a, it's definitely not like a satirically bad poem. No, no, it, it didn't strike me either as like a laughably a laughably bad poem. But uh, I wanted to get your take on. I I couldn't tell if it was if we were supposed to understand it as obviously mediocre or I agree. I I saw some yeah. like clunky lines but some like nice passages too it just seems yeah. like a weird sort of like true to life mixed bag of like someone yeah. who was publishing poetry in 1935 totally i mean what i kind of wonder is like in a culture where where like verse is more where like everybody has a little bit of training in verse and there's a lot more metrical rhyming poetry being published i think it's i think it's probably it would in some ways it would stand out less because it's because it is it's basically like it's basically like competent with a couple nice moments sure so my, my guess it is probably is that it, it probably is read as at the time was read as just sort of mediocre i think compared to so much just like like inert uh nonsense or whining or uh stream of consciousness that one sees in poetry magazines today like Reading it, I felt like, oh, okay. Like, if I got that as a submission, I'd be like, huh, all right. <laughs> Shit, okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah I, I suspect at the time it was- Here's $50. Less, right, here's $50. <laughs> which, which, like, though clearly, you know, the inflation has, has changed what that means. Like, getting $50 for a poem today- is still a really still nice a surprise. Still yeah, a still lot. like, holy shit. <laughs> I'm gonna go buy a new suit and take my friends out for a drink. Yeah, so, all right. So this is a book about a, like a guy who is both smart and eloquent as well as being kind of an idiot and, and like definitely way too navel gazing. I think that much it shares with your really delightful book, The Bachelor, which part of what I enjoyed about it, I think I mentioned this to Brian, was that it is, it's so well written and the, and the it's all written in the voice of the protagonist. Like he is so smart and he is such a brilliant talker, but he also is a sort of a fool. Like he kind of, he, he, he makes, he makes kind of foolish mistake after foolish mistake. In his case, it seems to be like, like definitely money is not like money plays a role in the bachelor, but it's not, it's, I think it seems like he's more of a fool for love than a fool for money. He's, he's like less morally constipated than Gordon, but he he's seems figure, to be figured out to ways like, to, to sort yeah. of, to, to state by, to sort of elude that world, at least, at least for the time being. I, yeah. I don't think that, uh, and I, th I think that that is something that a lot of writers are able to figure out how to do not forever but for a little while especially when they're younger yeah. and don't have families to take care of well and, and, and as so, in your book like sex can be a big part of that like sex and the promise of sex can can be like not at all unconnected like there's like joking about or in like in some cases unfair joking about people sleeping their way here and there but like for writers like who you are having sex with or might have sex with can be like really, really integrally connected to like how you live, you know? Talk more about that. What, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I mean, I think like that's, you know, people date and live together. There are people who, I mean, I think like part of the, the whole weird economy that exists between older writers and younger writers is like 
older writers have prestige and they have sometimes money, sometimes it's it's institutional money rather than personal money, but they, they are able to supply the booze and throw the party and the younger people bring a little bit of life and vitality as well as attractiveness. Like there's, you know, like Sewanee, um, uh, a big writer's conference I've been to a couple times, like is is sort of, I mean, notoriously uh, a a place where there's a there's a pretty like direct exchange of like uh, 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 like hoary, wrinkled, overweight, old prestige, and you know, hot, nubile, young, uh, uh, like obscurity. Like there's like those things clash pretty directly. I think I think a, a milder version of that happens in MFA programs. I think like for so many people who are able to say like make a living in publishing or make or not make a living live in publishing or live in writing. So many of those people have family money. So many of those people have a, a spouse who can support them. So many, like, I think there, there are a lot of different versions of this and like, whether it's a, a permanent arrangement or in the case of a couple, and usually it's younger women and older men, not always, but like, I've known a handful of people who were young women who hooked up with much older much more successful men who helped establish their careers. And in some cases, then it was a temporary arrangement and in other cases, less so. But like, that's, it's not, they, you know, like it's taboo to, there are shitty ways to talk about that that are unfair. And usually as with these things, they tend to be unfair to women, but also like, you're kidding yourself if you think it has no role to play. Like that's, you know, I, like <laughs> I am, I am very happy with my marriage and my family, but like, it's not, it, it's not meaningless that like my wife makes substantial money. Like, like she makes money in a way that I have never made in my life. And like, that's right. not, that's right. not insignificant in like how I'm able to be somebody who like writes and even does a podcast like this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I, I and so, the, yeah, the protagonist of, of my book ends up sort of, you know, getting together for a while with, with this, older woman who uh, is not a writer or really even connected to the writing world, but she does have a lot more money than he does. And through her is able to get hooked up with this sort of house sitting gig at, at this palatial mountaintop house for several months where he's able to, where he's essentially, he essentially is being paid to live in this beautiful place and, and write. And so, yeah, that, that plays out in, uh in my book it's not something that i think is talked about or thought about much but maybe a, a stream that runs underneath the decision making of of the characters yeah like i think that like that is uh mom has a line in i think it's in the razor's edge where he talks about like how, how as a writer you can go to everybody's party and it's partly because like in some cases you are the you're like the the middle class successful one in some parties, and then in other parties, you're you're like the charming hobo. But you know, you you bring a little a little something uh, to one to one group or another, and you, as with your protagonist, kind of skate skate by on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. For being a, a book that is that is you know largely a sort of a picaresque you know s series of like failed or near missed love affairs, and then and then one like long and compelling and and strange love affair as well as being a book that, that is also a lot about 
TV in general and The Bachelor TV show specifically, your book also includes an enormous amount of John Berryman, uh, which which I loved. <laughs> like I, I ate up, but I'm curious what, I don't remember specifically when we were in grad school, your having like any, any like special like thought or, or relationship to or interest in Berryman or poetry at, at all beyond like the classes we taught what what's with john berryman uh well beyond the classes we taught we were all experts in in poetry when we taught those classes <laughs> in grad school so, we were, so yeah we were completely i was completely fluent in all aspects of poetry <laughs> fr from homer up until the contemporary times uh, I, I don't think I had really read much Berryman uh, at that point in my life. Um, I, I'm a, an off and on reader of poetry and have been for a long time. Um, no, I just, for whatever reason, picked up a used copy of the Dream Songs uh, shortly before starting work on, on The Bachelor and just uh, just found it amazing, just really connected with it and... and uh, I don't know, just r really, really found it sort of delightful in a way that I, I hadn't found uh, reading poetry, I think, in, in quite a while. So I just, just picked up the Berryman and sort of vibed with it. And then shortly thereafter, and this is really sort of the spark for including Berryman in the novel, I read a biography of John Berryman, which I thought was truly terrible. A truly, truly <laughs> embarrassingly, awfully written book. Um, what, such what, such that I was like, it was. I was going to say was you, like, you talk about you talk about the badness of. I'm assuming this same biography in in The Bachelor, yeah. and it is very funny. But just for for listeners, what what made it bad to your? Because I'm assuming you did. It wasn't that you had a deep knowledge of his biography that you were comparing it to, but that no, it, was it wasn't like, like I thought Berryman did this, but he. It was no, it was bad, bad in itself, and it was. I find this often when I I don't read biography a, a bunch, but and it's usually of, it's usually literary biography when I do, and I often f feel some version of this feeling, but I felt it even more strongly reading this Berryman biography, which is just the like utter presumptuousness of of the author when talking about. Uh, various stages uh, and especially like stages like um stages of sort of consciousness or emotions in the in the subject's life just the sort of like you know based on whatever sort of research he did some interviews some reading through the diaries and letters and stuff stating with like either stating sort of with absolute authority like Berryman felt this at this point in his life or Berryman thought these things at these at this point in his life or or saying like you know uh you know we can easily imagine that Berryman felt these things as he read this letter from so-and-so or like it's not hard to imagine Berryman thinking this as he like uh was rejected by a million different magazines up until he was 35 like I don't know, and that, that feeling of sort of like the the subjects not really being present in a biography feels sort of like more poignant to me when the subject is a a writer him or herself yeah. uh, where like you're reading this biography because presumably because you've had some profound or near profound experience reading reading their work and and often that that 
that experience, you can feel like you're in really close contact, like closer contact than almost any other way of being in contact with someone. And then to have that rug sort of pulled out from underneath you reading about this person is just like a, I don't know, an interesting experience to me. And then that felt like more intense when, when it's a, or I don't know, more, maybe more like symbolically potent when, when it's a, a poet. <laughs> yeah, I think like my feeling reading about the lives of writers I've admired is often that I, I take a kind of consolation in the meaninglessness or the chaos of their lives. Like, yeah, very seldom is there a, like it, it not like not even like straightforward, but like credibly progressing story about like doing one thing to lead to another to get any like there's oh, so yeah, seldom yeah. like any sense that this person made meaningful choices that advanced you know, his career or his work or like led to anything in a predictable way or a reliable way. Like so often it's just a series of fucking billiard balls and lightning strokes and like nothing makes any sense and everybody suffers and like some good work comes out of it, but nobody can account for why or when. And then there's either a tragically quick or like re repugnantly slow demise and like, and then in the yeah, end we just sort of, we, then we like return to the work again and we're still we still understand nothing totally and that that's the, that was the case definitely reading this berryman biography and you know what's also the case is that we see these people making the compromises necessary to maintain any sort of artistic life at all and and yeah. sort of like often being tormented by those compromises and um and, and self-sabotaging in ways that like and self-sabotage are, yeah. are tragic, but then often, as often as not, like ineffectual. Like uh, uh, Delmore Schwartz self-sabotages and like just completely uh, uh, slides into absolute like squalor and um, and and insanity. And then Lowell and Berryman also self-sabotage, but somehow manage to to get out okay at least for a long time. Yeah, and, and, and Berryman does his, does his best work when he's like most ragingly an alcoholic. Yeah, uh, yeah, all all really really poorly behaved people. Like every like, the only well behaved people are the are the non writer wives. It seems like yes, in, in a lot of these stories, the writer yeah. wives and you know are are off, also often terrible people. But yeah, I, I'm always ambivalent about writers' biographies for that reason. That like like I. I just feel if the best outcome is that I feel like, oh, they didn't understand anything either. Yeah. And it doesn't, and there's no, and there's no real lesson to learn. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's like the opposite of reading, reading those like uh, rich dad, poor dad, or like entrepreneur biographies, like the, the opposite of those biographies would be like, oh, this is, this is how you do it. It's like nothing yeah. is how you do it. Nothing makes sense. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the best biographies portray that they, they just lay it lay it all out for you to receive that that sort of honest message and and the bad ones try to overlay that chaos with a sort of order that's not actually there in the lives of the the subjects i don't read a lot of poetry and i think the reason that i don't is because i like to be absorbed into the arc that i'm experiencing and so yeah. that often takes the form of 
reading a novel, uh, but it can also mean listening to music or, or watching a movie. And with poetry, it just, I think, probably for most people, it's just like harder to get that feeling of getting like swept away in it. Well, yeah, I should, we should all be reading a lot more poetry all the time. Maybe, maybe, but I'm so, I'm so resistant to that kind of, like, that's the, that's the, the, like, either the text or the subtext of, like, nearly every poetry podcast, for instance. And yeah. It, and, like, I, it's just so unconvincing. No, it is. It is, and I didn't, I don't mean that, but I do think, like, I don't know, what's, what's, how, how can poetry just be, like, a, a presence in our lives without it, it, dominating your life in the way that it does if you're a poet it's like how can that happen how can we make that happen as a society yeah i mean there's like i I, I hate to say like the writer's almanac but like in terms of people's daily life like that's one of the better like you know i used to produce that show and write for it you know i actually had forgotten about it um i didn't i didn't mention it for that reason because i i did know that about you but i totally forgot about that just now yeah, uh, as and that a, was a period where poetry was much more central to my life because I, I oh, okay, presented right. a selection of poems to Garrison Keillor to choose from to read when he was recording th- that week's batch of poems for the show. So, so I like you, rifled through like best American poetries the past twenty years and like the pretty big but not super big poetry library that we had in the office and just yeah. like photocopied some of the poems that I thought would read well on that show. And uh, in that respect, I guess I have, I was at once, this is like for one year, right when I was out of college, I I had a role in which I was sort of an arbiter in the poetry world. What were your criteria? Just, you said you thought they would read Will Garrison like this and want want to read this poem? It was more about like trying to match the selection of his taste. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, will it connect with the average NPR listener who's sort of distracted driving to work like it can't be super complicated it's best if it's narrative and and, you know understandable non not super fragmented sentences definitely definitely but there's all there is also for the npr listener there is a little bit of i think a having been a an npr listener and and uh uh subscriber for for a long time um there is an element to npr listeners of wanting to feel like they're they're in the know or in on something or they're like like in a way you wouldn't want you wouldn't do just um just carl sandberg or ogden nash wouldn't do it right like they'd be totally understandable Mm -hmm, but you you need Mm -hmm. a little a little je ne sais quoi right you need something to make it feel like, um, I'm glad I got some poetry today. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you know, like poets like Mary Oliver recurred mm-hmm. again and again. Billy Collins, another favorite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Poets like that, if I can group them together, were uh, were, were pretty popular. And but and but they also like they tend to supply a little, a little touch of some 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 mystery or some. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some, something you know. They're not. Uh, they're not just writing jokes, and they're not just writing stories. Right.
That was my conversation with Andrew Palmer. Again, he is the author of The Bachelor, and you can find him on you <laughs> you can find him on Twitter at Andrew Palmer, A H N D R E W P A L M E R. Andrew Palmer. For those of you who have not already heard it, here is an excerpt from my most recent conversation with Alice on The Secret Show. I still have doubt. I still think, well, you don't 100% know what was going on with that person. Yeah. Um, maybe you read that wrong. Maybe you read that situation wrong. Maybe maybe you're wrong. Um, so there's a, there's a confidence piece to it as well. There's like, there's a need to feel, for me, to feel completely confident more than confident before I feel like I can be completely honest sure yeah I think that's I get that and that seems fair and reasonable like here's a so there's a there's like a type of uh, HBO comedy slash BBC drama that Joanne and I watch a lot. And on those, there there tends to be like, there are a couple things that happen. Like one is that in the, in the BBC dramas, the rule is all white men must be evil, stupid, weak, or all of the above, right? And then in the HBO comedies, often if they're, often it's like white people are clueless and insensitive or men are clueless and insensitive and are basically the butt of the joke. And uh, when I see those, I think like, Okay, like I get it. Like there's a need to like I don't think those are perfectly accurate representations of like all white people, but I also think like there's a need for some people to be able to like laugh at this. There's a need for some people to be able to like make fun of like groups of people that have driven them crazy. And like particularly if you're among women and you're making cracks about the men in your lives, like there's a certain degree of like necessary catharsis. Like you know, Insecure is not a show about like validating the white male experience it's a show about like like black women professionals in california trying to make it and like if and when men or white people come into their lives often they're sort of the gag and like that's fine because like there's a lot of genuine frustration that people who relate to that show presumably have with the people who get made fun of in the show and like great fine perfect um I don't think that means that you, like if you participate in jokes at the expense of like men or the whatever, like I don't think that means that you need to have total confidence that everything you say is totally true about men. I think it just means that what you were, what, what is true and what you do have confidence in is the experience of women who can laugh at that joke, right? Who say like, mm -hmm. oof, I know how that feels. Like I saw a great line on Twitter uh, today that was a, I can't remember who it was, but I, I'll see I'll see if I can find it. But it was a, a woman said, um, no surprises that have ever been as great as the surprise of a man hearing his wife's plans for the second time. Um, and I thought like, that's a good <laughs> joke. Like, I, like Joanna does like gets on me about like my surprise at things she where she's told me before. And like, I don't know if it's always a fair joke, but like, it definitely nails the experience of women who must be frustrated at that experience. Like that's what it's getting at more so than it's, it's not necessarily even saying anything particularly insightful about men. It's saying something about the experience of women, right? Like, Oh my God, I, I recognize that. I feel that way. Right. That's who it's for. Yeah. So I think like when I make fun of somebody on the show or I make fun of somebody's 
writing. It's not because I wish that person any harm. It's not because I think that I'm necessarily right. I think like often I'm not right. And I, and I like, luckily people will tell me when I'm wrong. Uh, and I, I will learn more. And like, I totally expect to read work by Alyssa Gabbert and think like, oh, wow, she's smarter than I thought. Though I already think she's, I just think she's like an odd mind who's often right and often wrong. Um, I expect to read writing, like, I wouldn't be surprised if I read something by Ada Lamone and they're like, oh shit, all right, that's pretty good. Or something by Garth Greenwell, it's something by any number of people. But what's also true is that particularly if you are already successful, already celebrated, already in demand, then like you get the chance to go out in public and say a bunch of shit. And a lot of that shit is going to end up being dumb. And so within, when lots of people who are not in demand, who are not widely published, who are not listened to, read you already celebrated person saying your dumb shit in public, they're gonna be frustrated as all get out, right? They're gonna say, oh my God, I can't believe I'm listening to another one of these top 10, you know, celebrated award-winning people saying yet another dumb thought about poetry in public. And that's the big thought that's set out there in public for everybody to listen to about poetry. And we all are supposed to nod at it. And so what I'm saying is not so much like, let me tell you what's true about your soul, famous person who's speaking in public. What I'm saying is I also wince at that and I want to give everybody an opportunity to laugh at it. Because I know we're all frustrated by having to hear that shit. So I don't think it's necessarily like identifying any deep truth about what's being said. It's identifying a truth about the experience of encountering all that, the experience of being an underling having to listen to it or something to that effect. Fuck. <laughs> I'm, by oh, the way, geez, I'm, I'm going to, I found, I looked up because I, I told, I told Jonathan, Jonathan gave me grief for making fun of uh, Alyssa Gabbert. And he said, I just think if that, you know, if that happened to me, if somebody, if some like corner of the internet were saying like, I'm, you know, uh, so-and-so, you're a moron, I would be really, offended and angry. And I thought like, if somebody, if some little corner of the internet was getting together and reading shit I had written and telling each other that I was a moron, I would be so flattered. <laughs> I would be really? so flattered. Really? Cause they're fucking like good, like good Lord, because that means they're reading it. And then I realized that has actually happened already. Like that has happened. Oh, yeah. yeah, here, I'll, I'll pull it up. Cause I was going to do that, but yeah, I'll pull it up. Cause I was looking at it the other day. So, uh, Umpteen years ago, 10 years ago, maybe, I wrote a, an essay called Why Poems Don't Make Sense. And... Oh, yes, I read this. And um, and I have, like, you know, mixed feelings about it now. But there were... Some people responded to it nicely. Some people also um, really fucking hated it. Uh, Trey on realpants.com wrote, I guess in a way it's appropriate that he tried to write about nonsense and ended up writing nonsense. Eldon Spangle wrote, Fuck That Noise. Um, what was the one really, you know, here's, oh yeah, Surly Ray Jepsen, nice, nice handle, wrote, didn't make it past the thesis sentence. <laughs> um, and Publishing Genius, a small literary press based in my hometown wrote, please read this asshole bullshit, tell me what it says, then shoot me in the fucking face. And then linked to my article. So I think like I was flattered. And in fact, like Paramanan Singh wrote a really thoughtful piece in detail about exactly how wrong I was. And I like wrote him a note, it's like, that's a smart essay. I'd still disagree with you, but like, how could you not be flattered by that? Be like if some small group of people cares enough to like talk to each other about how much they think you're wrong, then like, holy shit, that's such a, like, that's such a compliment. 
Are you actually I Surly Ray Jepsen? Is this what I'm going to find out? <laughs> I fucking wish. What an amazing handle. <laughs> is, yeah, pretty um, I think you are right objectively, but I'm with Jonathan. I yeah. would just crumble if I got that kind of response to something that I had written. Unless, and I think this is the difference with the piece that you wrote, you're kind of going out there swinging. I was kind of asking for it. <laughs> oh my God. None of this is usable. None of this is usable. 